Genre. everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Hi and Ed McDonough from the film Raising Arizona. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest Todd Peterson. Welcome back, Todd. Oh, it's great to be here, especially for Raising Arizona. (laughs) So for listeners who are not familiar with Raising Arizona, it is a 1987 film directed by Ethan Cohen that was written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and it starred Nicolas Cage as H.I. Hi, McDonough, and Holly Hunter as Edwina Ed McDonough. It tells the story of an ex-cop and an ex-con who are married and want to have a kid but can't, so they kidnap one of a set of quintuplets. That's that's just too many kids for one couple, so they have to have one. <laughs> they had more than they can handle. So Raising Arizona is, for me, a film that I just associate with film school because that's when I first saw it. It came out when I was five years old. There's no reason I would have seen it then, and and it wasn't you know, big enough to be like everywhere. Uh, you know, it, it was just one of those quirky Coen brothers films, which I'd heard of the Coen brothers, but I'd never seen this one. And in film school, it got shown to us. And uh, I think in one class, they had shown us the convenience store robbery scene when we were talking about editing. And then another class, like that same week, we watched the whole movie <laughs> because that, that was the film of the week in that other class for us to talk about. And like, I, I think the day I saw it, I went out and bought the DVD so that I could rewatch it that night uh, because it just it compelled me <laughs> There was something about it in its quirkiness, in the pacing, the strangeness. And when I say like the pacing, I mean everything for like the comedic timing of a line delivery or uh, how long they will hold a scream from John Goodman. But I also mean it's like there's a 10 minute prologue before the film's title appears on screen. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's There's so many odd choices that feel like this isn't how you do it and this shouldn't be working, but somehow it does all come together in a really uh, stunning film for this is the second film by the Coen brothers. I think now like the Coen brothers are an institution. They're Oscar winners. Everyone knows it's a Coen brothers film. This is their second one. And there's just a lot of confidence to make the choices they make in this one. Oh man. You know, my experience with it was, I was uh, like a senior in high school. I was down at the video store. I was trying to be like the kid who was going to go be a film major in college and was looking for stuff. And I see, I didn't know you movie. then, but I know you because you know <laughs> that person, yeah. right? Well, I, w- I was and, that person, right? <laughs> and so we're all like, Hey, what should we see? And I go, check this out, man. There's this movie called blood simple. And I was like showing it. Like, I didn't even know who the Coen brothers were at that time. That's I just their said, first this film. sounds like, right. yeah, it sounds like exactly our jam. And they're like, fine, whatever. Uh, we don't argue about it. So we went down to the basement. We watched this film. I was enraptured and, and, my friends were like, this is pretty cool, man. You know? Um, but it was, it was in that, uh, like it was so independent blood simple. Mm -hmm. Like it was so outside of the studio norm. Um, and so then the next year when I was in college, I was off by myself. I, um, went to a campus screening. Like it wasn't even in class. Um, it was just one of those things, you know, they show movies on campus. It was a buck, or something like that. And I said, oh, the Coen brothers, man, they're the ones that did that blend simple. So I kind of thought I knew what I was getting into. And then I sat through the whole movie and it was kind of one of those moments where if I would have had the power, I would have said, hey, 
projectionist <laughs> again. So, so in my case, I just went out and bought the DVD so I could watch it again the same day. <laughs> and right, you, and, you and were there too. <laughs> you know, in 1987, you could do it, but I didn't have a VCR right. sitting at home or whatever. But, but that was a defining moment for me. Like I sat and I watched that film and the, the, the large lecture hall that the film was screening and emptied out and I was sitting there. And there was like a guy going, hey, man, I need to lock up. And I just was sitting there. And all I wanted was to be able to make something like that one day. Like, that's all I was left with. Like, it, it was like so completely spoke to me. And then I was trying to be evangelical about it. Like, we have to see this. We have to see this, you guys. We have to. So I went through the sources. Even though I didn't have a VD, VCR, I bought a VHS of it. And then I had a DVD of it and then I had a Blu-ray of it. And now I have like an iTunes HD file of it. I've got one ripped to my computer so I can do things with it. Uh, grab uh, clips and screenshots. I mean, this thing is kind of like core memory. Right. For me, but also foundational. Like I'm, I measure my own writing and my own things like against this kind of, this is the speed of light. Mm-hmm. For me. And I read that it's the same for Edgar Wright. Like, this is his favorite movie. Yes, I did see that uh, in the trivia. I pulled it up and his I, I can see it in his editing style, not necessarily in like the 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 tone per se. I mean, I think there's so, definitely some elements of tone that that does overlap. But uh, Edgar Wright's editing, um, I've, I've heard it said like it, it's that's the magic of the Edgar Wright film is when you see the editing in terms of like what shots he's chosen to have and the the sequence in which they get put together and like the overhead shots and things you know out of the blue there's it always makes everything visually interesting as you watch it and then i think about that convenience store scene i'm like oh of course this is his favorite film <laughs> that is <laughs> you know it, but, it, it, it's there in the dna right there but a, a close read of that convenience store scene i mean there, there's a number of them but are you, we're thinking of the ones with the dogs mm -hmm. and the the, and, the, and the gun grocery happy store cop. <laughs> right. And the son, you got a penny on your head. Like, I don't know how you would even think through setting that up. I mean, it is it is madcap to the max. Mm -hmm. I mean, so so in that you can see a, a sense for broad comedy slapstick. I mean, it like is almost Looney Tunes um, violence, right? Where the violence yes. doesn't really have the stakes that you expect it to have. Right. It, particularly like when they're shooting, it's just bang, 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 bang. And it's so ridiculous over and over again. And and yet it's shot with such ferocity. Like it just moves. Like even to the point where there's the chase scene and it's going through the house mm -hmm. and they're just interrupting people's meals and their television watching, whatever. It's just a chasing so hard and it's so ridiculous that it shouldn't work at all. Yeah. And I think that in later Coen brothers, there's a whole sense of like, yeah, this is going to cohere. Like you think of something like no country for old men, also like a masterwork from them. It doesn't have the same kind of, um, go for itness that you see in raising Arizona. I mean, they, they just seem like they're unfettered. Yeah. And I wonder if some of it is they're moving from uh, a very small budget independent film to the studio film. And is it just like the sandbox got so much bigger in terms of what they could do? <laughs> um, yeah. So maybe it's like, maybe they'll take it away from us. So we have to do it. Mm -hmm. 
or else. And and you know, in the Coen Brothers' careers, you know, they they have ebbed and flowed before they were there. So you know, what one two three? It's Blood Simple, Raising Arizona. Uh, Let's see. I I had it up. Let me. It's pull up the uh, Barton Fink, right? I think that's the third. It's it is such and, an eclectic. When you, I mean, we could do a whole episode just talking about the Coen Brothers because you never know what's coming next in terms of tone and and plot and genre. Uh, they are always just willing to, or not just willing, but oh, like deliberately choosing to do something very different. Miller's Crossing, That's then it. Barton Fink. One, two, three is uh, Miller's Crossing is the third. Um, so they they had something similar when they went into Hudsucker Proxy, right? They entered this this. They were staying on their own velocity, but they entered the space. It's like, hey, guys, what's this movie? Because it's not like what you've been doing. Hudsucker Proxy is my favorite Coen Brothers film. I, I mean, there's I, I also love uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But Hudsucker Proxy has just something. But but at these there. moments, right, yeah. with whether it's I think it's um, Raising Arizona. Hudsucker Proxy. Um, Big Lebowski. I mean, also Far- Fargo's they, the one that went, didn't they win an Academy Award for that? Far- Fargo was the big one, but I think that was their darker turn, you know, mm-hmm. um, where they, they said, this is one pathway that we take. Um, but then they periodically kind of refresh themselves, you know, um, uh, Hail Caesar. Yes, we're going to do a, you know, a screwball moment that, 1950s comedy. Yeah, absolutely. It fe- and so Hail Caesar feels like it's just like lifted right from the the Preston Sturges playbook. Um, but yeah, you're right. Oh, brother, where art that was another one. That's like, wow, this is just sort of springing up and it's its own thing. But then again, it's also kind of every other real comedic thing that the Coen brothers have done, you know, and of course they've done like really significant and serious, um, kinds the dark of dark dramas well. that are their Oscar bait films, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's what's probably going to happen here with uh, uh, Joel Cohen's. Is it Joel Cohen's? Mm-hmm. He's doing Macbeth? the the tragedy of Macbeth. Um, you know, <laughs> with uh, Denzel. Although in I the, in the lead role there, and Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth. Welcome, I mean, that's a great cast, <laughs> right? I might welcome a Fargo style Macbeth, but I don't think that's what we're going to get. <laughs> yeah. I right, anyway, we're we're talking about raising. Arizona. We've gone pretty far afield <laughs> in terms right, of what yeah, uh, what raising Arizona like our our coming to it is where we usually open up. I did want to say though, you uh you had mentioned that this is one of your inspirational core texts, and I've been reading this book called Picnic in the Ruins by Todd Robert Peterson. Oh, that old thing. Yes, uh, and I like as soon as I met this pair of brother criminals <laughs> that are in here, part of me was like, these are Cohen brother characters. <laughs> it's. <laughs> I don't know whether it's homage or whether or not the imprint on me from the Coen brothers is so significant. I, I can't see things in any other right. way. And I'm, I, it does not, I'm not saying they're the brothers that we get in this at all. Yeah. It's just the voice. I could see it in the pattern of a Coen brothers film scene, the way they talk to each other. So I, I want to say you captured a Coen brothers spirit in picnic in the ruins, Todd. Well, that thrills me to no end. And it, it's also part of my origin story, as I mentioned yeah. just a little bit ago. Well, some trivia about this film. The Coen brothers wanted to make a film as different from their previous film as they could. Blood Simple was a dark, pessimistic film about affairs and murder. So they made a more upbeat, comedic film about child kidnapping. And I want to circle back to how, <laughs> like, I saw that quote in a couple of different places. I was looking at trivia that this was their optimistic film. I want to come back to how optimistic and upbeat this film is. 
per se. Uh, This is their second film. They've continued to be eclectic in terms of tone and subject matter in their almost 20 films that they have made. Raising Arizona was 35th, uh, 31st on AFI's list of 100 years, 100 laughs when they were ranking the greatest comedy films. When it was released, the film had mixed reviews, um, but more recent assessments are generally very positive. And I think it's earned kind of a a higher regard in film circles uh, than maybe what it had when it first came out. And as we noted, Edgar Wright has called this his favorite film of all time. And when it was released, it made 22 million at the box office, which was good for 49th highest grossing film of the year in 1987, which um, I think based on the budget they had was actually a pretty big return. This was back in the era when not everything was either an independent film on streaming services or a massive franchise film. So (laughs) having uh, a a smaller budget and earning 22 million was a success uh, at the time. Different different film industry, <laughs> right? And it unlocked doors for them. You know, they were they were straight up full on independent um, filmmakers, and they got brought into that studio system. Mm-hmm. And I think by in large part because of the success of this film, Miller's Crossing, and other ones that followed. Yeah. So before we move to the summary of this film, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not covering as full episodes of the podcast yet. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now on to summarizing this film, which turned out to be a fairly brief summary when you're just describing the plot beats of <laughs> raising Arizona. Uh, but if I was trying to describe like all the film choices that are made and uh, the, the character voices that the actors get to engage in, this would be a much longer summary. So we're going to get through the plot and then we'll talk about some of what makes this film special. So H.I. McDonough is a repeat convenience store robber. Every time he gets arrested, an officer named Edwina takes his mugshot and fingerprints, and they flirt. Eventually, when he is released from prison, Hi, and that's what he goes by, he proposes to her, and they get married and move out to a trailer home. They want to have children, but uh, Ed is infertile. They hear the news about Arizona Quince, a set of quintuplets born to the furniture store magnet Nathan, Arizona. (laughs) There's... So much about this that it's going to be hard to read with a, a straight face. Hi and Ed think that's too many babies for one couple to handle, and they decide to kidnap one. They put a ladder on top of their car, and they drive to the Arizona mansion. Hi climbs up to the baby's nursery and takes his sweet time picking one out to take with him. He eventually takes uh, one that he thinks is Nathan Jr., but he's not sure because they all got loose in this scene. Uh, when they get home, they try to settle into their new life when Hi's old prison mates, Gail and uh, 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 Evel, is that how it's said? Uh, yeah, I think it's Evel, uh, who are recently escaped from prison. They show up and want to crash there. And when I say recently escaped from prison, John Goodman plays Gale. And imagine, if you will, him being birthed from muck, like a, just a rain pouring mud everywhere. And suddenly John Goodman rises from this and screams as he slowly wrenches his body out of the mud and pulls himself out. And then he turns and sticks his hand as deep into the mud as is humanly possible and lifts out a foot and he's pulling out his brother. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's like a two minute sequence of the film. It's a pretty special little moment there. Uh, so, 
Um, Gail and Evel are there and they want to crash with High. Ed is not pleased uh, as she wants to just settle into new domestic life with her son. Um, that night, High has a nightmare about a monstrous spiker from hell hunting him. The next day, High's foreman, Glenn, stops by with his wife and their very unruly children to see the new baby. And by really unruly, I mean... This, this is a bad situation. These parents are, are not responsible. When Glenn implies to High that uh, he and his wife would be up for a wife swap with High and Ed, High punches Glenn in the face. That night, uh, knowing that he's lost his job, High gives in to the old siren call of robbing a convenience store, and he tries to steal diapers. Ed sees him doing this, and she drives off. Uh, and then one of the best edited but strangest police chases ever put to film ensues. Um, let's just say that in the narrative universe of Raising Arizona, gunplay is not frowned upon by the cops or the convenience store employees. Eventually, High gets back in the car with Ed and Junior, and they grab the package of Huggies that is lying in the middle of the road. Uh, as High like, directs her, turn right here, turn right here left here and then uh all this time she's been chewing him out but then that takes him right by the package of huggies that's in the road and he just leans out the car door and grabs them um glenn comes this is the man that he punched uh, that high had punched he comes and confronts uh high and he says that he has worked out that high and ed kidnapped one of the arizona quints gail and evil overhear this and so they kidnap nathan jr after a very comedic fight with lots of john goodman screaming uh the biker from hell turns out is real it was not a nightmare and is a bounty hunter who is looking for the missing baby gail and evil rob a convenience store but accidentally leave nathan jr on top of their car as they drive away uh the car seat falls off and lands happily in the middle of the road and the baby is fine. Uh, when they realize that they don't have Nathan Jr. with them, uh, Gail and Evel start screaming nonstop and turn and drive all the way back and pick him up from the middle of the road. Then they go to rob a bank. Uh, a blue dye pack is put into the money. In their haste to escape from the bank, they leave Nathan Jr. behind again. High and Ed are out looking for them. And just after the blue dye explodes inside of their car and coats every everything in the car completely blue, uh, High and Ed find Gail and Evel in their car. Gail and Evel confess that they left the baby behind, and High and Ed go back to the bank where the bounty hunter has just arrived. An absurd fight follows that ends up with the bounty hunter being blown up by one of his own hand grenades. And now High and Ed have Nathan Jr. again, and they go back to the Arizona mansion and sneak back into the baby's nursery. As they're putting Nathan Jr. back, Nathan Sr. comes in and confronts them. They all have a heart-to-heart -heart where Nathan Sr. says that he won't press charges and he offers some good life advice to High and Ed. That night, High has another dream. This one's about the future. He sees Gail and Evel deciding to go back to prison. He sees Glenn being pulled over by a cop to whom he tells a racist joke and the cop does not find it very funny at all. Uh, Junior grows up to be a football star and he also has a vision of an old couple who just might be him and Ed welcoming their children and their grandchildren into their home and he muses, was I just fleeing reality like I know I'm li liable to do? But me and Ed, we can be good too. And it seemed real. It seemed like us. And it seemed like, well, our home. If not Arizona, then a land not too far away where all parents are strong and wise and capable and all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah. The end. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't like, like in talking about this film and what makes it special I don't know whether we need to praise the writing or the performances or the directing and editing. Like they're, they're all, they're, there's so many great things about this film. Do you have something that for you resonates most? Um, I would say writing first. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of the way that the film is structured. Like it makes some really interesting choices that are deep down in its DNA. For example, that's extended 10 minute opening 
um, that really uses narration mm-hmm. way more than I, you know, when I was in screenwriting classes um, and studying film, it's like, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. The voiceover monologue was very out of style. Um, um, but, but it also played with it, right? It, um, I think that it was a, a way uh, advanced look at like the uh, arrested development style of narration, right? It right. was kind of at odds or orthogonal to what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so Nicholas Cage's character is giving the narration, but it's, it's not a duplication of what you're seeing, right? At some t- in some cases, it's, um, you know, it's like political observation, right? Like he's back out and he's robbing convenience stores again. And he said, I tried to straighten up and fly right, but with that son of a bitch Reagan in the White House, you know, it was really hard. And so it's this really interesting moment. And he says, well, I don't know. He's, everybody says he's a good guy. Maybe his advisors were confused. <laughs> so, so there's this like kind of high level political commentary, but also given by this guy who, oh gosh, I wrote this down because it was amazing. I did a bunch of freeze frame stuff when I was getting ready for tonight. Um, High's parole sheet says, criminal is recidivist with sociopathic tendencies and no marketable skills except drilling holes in sheet metal. (laughs) And so they're like paroled. And so this is like the sense of who this is, but he's, his commentary is at times political and philosophical Mm -hmm. and reflective. Um, But also, I think think it's worth noting, uh, like it's, um, contrary to what we're being shown as the truth uh you know like uh, yes yes he's making some political statements about reagan's america and uh the tough on crime bills and the economic situation but also he's making some really bad choices that are his own fault (laughs) oh yeah absolutely um but i think that that's what moves through this and um it makes out of these characters really really sympathetic people Mm -hmm. because of course they're kidnapping a baby and I think that, that that it's that tension across the whole film. Like at one at one level, this thing is just a ridiculous madcap comedy. On a le- another level, this is the most horrifying thing that a person like could do, short of you know like murdering or raping somebody or whatever. Just like Kidnapping that a baby. idea. Yeah, it's so yeah. antithetical to any moral compass that anyone could possess. And and it's so interesting that they've worked themselves into this argument that it's okay. Like there's the, the, the way that the plot goes, they're so desperate because of their um, battles with infertility that they're willing to give this a go. Right. And, and later in the film, Holly Hunter has sort of a great way that she rectifies everything that's happened and how she kind of um, went from being a cop to a criminal. Yeah. And she calls herself out. And I think that's, there's been lots of madcap films. I mean, we could say, you know, another madcap director like Jared Hess, right? Mm-hmm. But it re- he really hovers a little lot of his work on the madcap. This film uses that madcap to get into something else. And I think the great sadness of parents that want to have children who can't. Mm-hmm. Well, and also I think in terms of like high and and like everything that he wants, like it is he's trying to obtain the American dream. He just wants to settle down with his wife and have kids and raise a family, uh, you know, and and he's trying to work the nine to five job uh, and he hopes that's all going to be enough. And what we get shown over and over is 
the, the American dream is like illusory for him. Like he can't actually grab onto it um, and hold onto it. And yes, there is like laugh out loud comedy happening, but I think there's a, a real dark undertone that is riding through this. Yeah. And so within that, that um, commentary, there's this kind of class stuff. Okay. So the Arizona family, like he's a small business owner. He's um, obviously doesn't live in a trailer in suburban Tempe. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a large home um, he's got everything in front of him. So he's really an achiever of the American dream. He would be whatever, what do we call in the news today? He'd be a job creator. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, but high is really trying to kind of rise up um, through the ranks and get to a place. But at one point in time, when they're trying to adopt um, high basically says, you know, on the one hand, there's uh who knows who on, on the other side, there's favoritism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's another one of those, I think really astute um, political observations that the Coens are making through high about, Hey, you want to know what the American dream that we might all be able to ascend that maybe isn't going to happen. Now, of course this is happening in 87, which is at the beginning of what we're seeing now in, you know, socioeconomic and political discourse saying, since the seventies, man, wages have been stagnant and they've been moving more towards other people, um, higher up. Yeah. For working class wages have been stagnant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Working class wages have been stagnant while, um, uh, CEOs and owners, those things have been, uh, like skyrocketing. Yeah. Exponential increase, and, <laughs> not linear. And so what, this is pretty common in a crime narrative mm-hmm. and that's what drives people to crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's the, the. Jean Valjean, right? Like, like we have to understand that sometimes these acts of desperation are born because people are like, there is no way we can use the system to help ourselves. But that's, so here's this movie that's like hilarity. And it's also talking about that. It's also talking about people who are so backed in a corner, they never could do it. Right. Uh, and, um, that is what I kind of wanted to ask about with that idea that they said they wanted to make a, a more upbeat and optimistic film than their first one. Do you think this film is upbeat and optimistic? Where, where, where do you land? I do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because it recovers itself. Yeah. I think it, it, it does what a lot of films don't, which is it's going to show people kind of going down a, a hole or, you know, we can do films or prestige television. So something like breaking bad is about a series of bad choices that lead basically to the bottom of the pit of hell and, and, and influencing every single person that he touched, yep. you know? And so, yeah, so you just there and they just pull every dad buddy down behind. But what's so interesting about this film is that it turns around. So, you know, they, they take this baby, they try to raise it as their own. They get found out. And then the baby gets kind of moved around. And one of the influences we didn't talk about here is like Donald Westlake's The Hot Rock, um, where if it, it's this great crime novel with a movie with Robert Redford in it, where there's this emerald that keeps on being stolen and then restolen and restolen. <laughs> and it's kind of, you see it again in Snatch mm-hmm. uh, and other kind of films like that. So the baby becomes the hot rock of the hot rock um, in this. And so it's, uh, yeah, they stole the baby, but then... Um, his boss wants to take the baby for their own because they're having trouble getting through the complex uh, hoops of adoption. And then the jailbirds, as they call them, right? The the, the brothers, the, uh, Gail and Ebel, um, 
they say, hey, what we can pick up the reward on this. And then, you know, again, it's just like boom, 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 boom. So there's a, there's a little bit of money that gets skipping from person to person. And then the Tex Cobb's character, the lone biker of the apocalypse is like, I'm going to return him. So again, that baby just moves from hands to hands to hands. Uh, and then that's when Edwina goes, we're no better than the jailbirds. And so that's when she says, if we, I don't care about us anymore. She says in the end, she's they're driving down the highway um, in the, in the police car. She's like, I don't care about us anymore. I just care about getting that baby safe. And if we lose that baby, I don't know if I can go on living. And if we get this baby back, she says to her, hi, I don't know if I can keep on living with you. So she's like the moral core and the compass for this thing. And she puts it all back in line after all this kind of terrible, crazy hijinks, madcap stuff happens. Also, that's horrifying. She's the one that says, what we're going to do is take that baby back. So she's, she's empathizing with the Arizona family after they had justified, we have to steal from them because they got more than they can handle. You know, you just cracked something for me when I was writing down all the characters who like cycled and kind of like kept going through and returning. I hadn't nailed her down, but there it is. She like, she found her moral center again. She had lost it because of her desire for the baby and you know, her pushing high to go kidnap Nathan jr. Uh, but absolutely. But then she, she, she returns to being a cop and, uh, so, and centering everything. So it's legitimately comedic arc. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's important. So, you know, in the, in the discussions, at least that I teach of the comedic arc, it's the inversion of Freitag's pyramid, right. Or the, the um, tragic arc. So you descend down um, with like mistake, mistake, mistake until you hit instead of a, a zenith, a nadir. It like can't get any worse than this. And that's when they turn it around and climb back out of the mess. Mm-hmm. And so it's um, they reun- it's not ending with a marriage, but it's ending with reuniting a family. And then there's that projection into the future which is also so interesting yeah that monologue right? to a, cap it all off a, the, that flash forward to imagine a possibility after they return that uh that kid and um i just think it's so that's where it does what it doesn't what i didn't expect it to be anyway right so i go in and i'm expecting it to be one thing oh stealing a baby maybe it's going to be like dark or whatever nope it's not <laughs> and then it is and then it's not but it's about recovery. Like, so if, you, if I think it's a great narrative about the strength of a marriage as well, mm-hmm. like here are these people and they're like, they, they probably could have, should have, she should have just walked. You got me hooked up and stealing a baby. <laughs> um, that's probably too much. But what they, they did is they, while there was still kind of no quote unquote damage done, they were able to return that baby. But what's interesting is Nathan Arizona is such a butt through the whole movie until the baby's returned. And there's kindness in him too. Right. At the end. Mm-hmm. And, and he so gives them I like think, a life coach lesson that they need. Yeah, a- absolutely. And then that there's that sense then that moving forward, they maybe done something for Nathan Jr., right? Because he's going to be one of five. And the sense would be like in the nature versus nurture argument. <laughs> Here are here's a, a great case study. You've got quintuplets, and then one goes and spends a few weeks with someone else. Would he be different? And I think that's what's cool 
about the imagined future that uh, H.I. has at the end of this film. He imagines maybe he's going to be a little bit different. Maybe he's good at football because he was over there kind of, I, I don't know, absorbing it through osmosis, <laughs> right? Or experiencing a little bit of um, of kind of criminal life. Mm-hmm. And he's going to be different. And it also makes me imagine like when those kids are growing up and like, does that story ever come out? (laughs) Hey, you remember that time when you were kidnapped? (laughs) We weren't kidnapped, but that's just weird. And I don't remember it, but it would be, it would be a family story. Yeah. Right. But he imagines himself and his wife as the kindly couple who sends him Christmas presents, (laughs) which is like, again, a weird twisted kind of Coen brothers, like, kind of weird open adoption something <laughs> yeah i want to talk a little bit about that monologue at the end because i think that is definitely like the most optimistic part is him envisioning a future with with you know the the, the dream that he's been wanting uh the the home that he envisions is definitely more of a, a middle class home right and it's filled with children and grandchildren uh and uh he sees himself and, and ed there um you know as a elderly couple just welcoming back and that's what the film is you know about them being so desperate to obtain that and then being denied that and then like you said making the right moral choice to to give it back after they've you know somewhat successfully stolen (laughs) stolen it somewhat uh he has this vision uh and and even uh nathan senior like had the line when he was talking with him and giving him the life talk he he said something about like you know maybe science will catch up with you it sure did with us and you know that's why they had five (laughs) is because they were uh you know taking fertility medicine and so like it opened the cracked open a door there and then the vision like walked us through it and that's where the film ends which is really fascinating to me um that uh, so much of, I think the Coen brothers reputation is dark humor and, uh, so, you know, vein of cynicism, which we've already has identified as being present, but that's not the last taste that the film gives the audience at all. Um, you know, it, it does give us this kind of, uh, uplifting, uh, line and you put in the notes, like you want to talk about the, maybe it was Utah line <laughs> at the end. Uh, what is your takeaway on that line? Well, um, I think that it was a way of kind of going into the sweetness and then undercutting it Mm -hmm. again and undercutting. It's maybe the wrong thing, but, but this moment at the end, you know, where he's saying, uh, I I pulled that up and I've got it in front of me. It's like, I still, but I still hadn't dreamt nothing about me and Ed until the end. And this was cloudier because it was years, years away, but I saw an old couple being visited by their children and all their grandchildren too. The old couple weren't screwed up and neither were their kids or their grandkids. And I don't know, you tell me this whole dream. Was it wishful thinking like that sweetness is legit and honest and authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, he says, was I just fleeing reality? Like I know I'm liable to, but me and Ed, we can be good too. And it seemed real and it seemed like us and it seemed like, well, our home. And so, so that's powerful in the story. But remember when I was saying, like when I saw this in college, I sat there, I thought to myself, you can do this. You can have a film that is this good. It is about goodness. You got to go through all the other terrible stuff to get to the goodness, but you can do this. And that's what I was saying. Like, I want to do that. I want to do something that's wacky and dark and crazy and violent, but it would come down to something this that's believable that, that 
that this guy can be seeing after having stolen and returned <laughs> baby, that he would be this reflective and that the audience would go, yep. But again, I think if it would have ended with that line and it seemed real, it seemed like us and it seemed like, well, our home. But that next move, I think that's the fun part for me. Mm. If not Arizona, then a land not too far away where all parents are strong and wise and capable and all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah. And of course, the, you have to be like the yodeling comes next. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like this, there's this whole great musical motif of like Ode to Joy with banjos. banjo and, and like you said, yodeling. <laughs> it's a very and, strange and so, musical choice. Yeah, and, and that comes back in and it's a, it's a genius stroke, right? So Ode to Joy on its own is such an interesting piece of music to underpin this whole movie. But I think that that's what's, what's there. It's like by the end of this, it's, kind of not cheesy at all or corny for H.I. McDonough be, to be delivering this monologue. But that line, I mean, I was just how I didn't live in Utah. I was living in Oregon at that point in time. Mm -hmm. I, little would I know that I would live in both Arizona and Utah <laughs> in my lives. And I don't know whether I was trying to live through some sort of pilgrimage, but um, yeah, to, to see that. And of course it's Utah's reputation, right? Like that, um, that they lay Utah is kind of the Lake Wobegon, uh, of America <laughs> where everybody's above average. And I just think that it was playing with that really great stereotype. And, and also like to, there's the joke is so great on different levels where it's like, you know, LA not too far away from Arizona <laughs> and, it's, and it's Utah. <laughs> but then like you said, the stereotype it's, it's a surprisingly leveled final joke uh, in terms of like, it's just a joke about Utah, but it's like, no, it, it actually lands in a, for a couple different ways. Uh, there well, the and of course, for me as a writer, this, the book that you were talking about, the novel picnic in the ruins is right on the Arizona, Utah border in an area called the Arizona strip. And it goes backwards and forth, <laughs> forth across Utah in Utah. Things are kind of basically sound in Arizona is all criminal and terrible and devastating. <laughs> and so I'm, I guess I'm pretty shallow. <laughs> in my homage um, for, for just wanting to think through that space. But I also live, I, you know, I live really close. If I go stand up on a tall hill, I can look down into Arizona. Um, so that's my place in the corner of uh, Southwest Utah where I live now. Um, and, you know, I, I just think it's so interesting <laughs> that these Goen brothers, right. Who like one of their big things was to put uh, the upper Midwest on the cinematic map also kind of put uh rural suburban tempe yeah. right yeah the rural um, southwest <laughs> rural southwest on the map too mm -hmm. I, where, what, where are they going to strike next scott scotland i guess yeah oh, well yes that's our only knowledge of what they're actually doing that you know they're going to come out of uh uh a year of writing with something unexpected got they've got to but but i think that that's this whole section that we're talking about now is I think the key to what makes raising Arizona more than just wacky. Yeah, I think there's, the, and it's that combination that we've identified of some, some cynicism about the American dream, but then also this like hopefulness for these two characters <laughs> uh, and, and that like the yeah. motivation of that hope uh, is the final, the final flavor for us as an audience. And I suppose we should all look like if if these two misfits, H.I. and Edwina, 
can like straighten up and fly right. Maybe everybody can. <laughs> and and that's a really hopeful, almost borderline corny thing to talk about. Also not present in very many other Coen Brothers movies. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk some about the uh, the characters and the performances that we get. Before we talk about um, Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter, I do want to acknowledge John Goodman and the willingness of the Coen brothers to let Goodman scream in this film. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know what the script must look like for some of these, but it is sometimes like it feels, I, I don't know how long it really is, but it feels like a multi-minute scream just comes out of right. John Goodman. It's it, in the dictionary where it says barbaric yaw. It should just say, see John Goodman in raising Arizona. And doesn't he, he has two long screams in this. Is that right? I think it's th- well, he has when he's escaping from the jail. Right. And so that is the birth screen. Right. And then there's during the, the fight when they're kidnapping. Uh, oh, that's right. He and Nicholas Cage both get a lot of good screams in. Yep. 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 And, and, and I so, love that fight because they're in a space that's too small for them. They're in the small trailer park, you know, uh, living room. And like every time they try and pull their arm back for a fist, like it goes through the wall and they look at it and then they punch forward and they, the guy dodges and it goes through the next wall that's right there. And, you know, Nicholas Cage tries to raise his hand up to punch him and, he, and his hands hit the ceiling uh, and just constant screaming uh, in that sequence. I am. Uh, this is a digression that will circle back. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in my literature and film class, I taught Die Hard because most people don't know it was based on a novel. Um, and there is a fight in Die Hard, the film, that seems like it's based on, at least conceptually, on the fight from Raising Arizona. Um, it's when they're up there uh, and uh, Bruce Willis is fighting uh, the the German brother and they punch into the drywall in the same with the same kind of action. So I'm just wondering if that bit had come from McTiernan or the stunt coordinators or whatever, having seen Raising Arizona. But when I played it side by side for my class, they were like, oh, weird. It's so very much like it hmm. in completely different contexts. But anyways, yes, that was one of the long yells. And then when um, uh, they leave the baby in the street and have to turn yep. around and drive back, that is... And, a really and long that's yell. my favorite yell, <laughs> but that third one, because they just it, scream. Yeah, it's that one or the birthing one for me. <laughs> like, the, I just remember the birthing scene when I first saw it. Like, it's one of those scenes that I will never forget. I just remember like, what in the world is this? Like, how did a studio greenlight this? <laughs> <laughs> and And from what I understand by reading the production history, it was working with... Goodman on this character that created all of these other opportunities because he becomes kind of part of the larger ensemble for the Coen brothers. He's been in so many different things Mm -hmm. with them. I mean, he reappears in Barton Fink. He's in Brother Where Art Thou. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a Cyclops uh, Grand Dragon. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Which is a sentence that makes sense if you've seen (laughs) Oh Brother Where Art Thou. So Raising Arizona doesn't corner the market on dark, weird buffoonery sinisterness but yeah but this is what i'm saying again about raising arizona i believe that the seeds for other projects are down here in this movie and you can when you see their um look at their career retroactively you can go oh i can see where they were going i can see the kind of stuff that they were thinking about Mm -hmm. i can see even like the way they want to shoot things 
um, cause they're, they're known for shooting on short lenses, like 27s and, uh, 33s. And, uh, there's a lot of videos online that talk about this, but what it does, what those wide angle lenses do is it accentuates kind of some of the comedic features of the face, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, uh, accentuates forward mo- motion. So you can see in them, even though they're working with Sonnenfeld and they're not working with Roger Deakins yet, um, you can see some of these ideas about how to set up comedic shots. Yes, uh, Sonnenfeld, amazing the, one the cinematographer for this one. Yeah, Sonnenfeld did the first three with them, and then they um, moved into working with Deacons. And he has a really distinctive visual style that he's developed for his yeah. own work, too. Yeah, and that's when it, it's so interesting. He did this work with the Coen brothers and then kind of went off uh, to kind of follow his own career uh, as a director Which, after doing that work. I mean, I don't want to say anyone's had a peak, but... Pushing Daisies might be his peak. He did the, he did the, yeah. the pilot for that, which is just an amazing piece of filmmaking. And I remember early on, again, as a young film student, I was reading. I, my mother gave me a subscription to Premier Magazine, and I had read some stuff that Sonnenfeld talked about um, when he was shooting for them, kind of what it was like to be on stage, and that was really fascinating. His tech the technique was really pretty organic i guess for how they would put together shots and think about how to do it but there's these amazing kind of long tracking crane shots um because again another scream is when florence arizona realizes that her children are gone and the camera comes rushing in from afar Mm -hmm. and goes up the ladder into the open window and into florence arizona's mouth and that's just like a virtuosic kind of like we're gonna do this because we can yeah kind of shot yeah and and at that point i was young and i was really impressed by things that were kind of obvious um in a film and that was like whoa this is some pretty good camera work Mm -hmm. i of course hadn't yet sort of gone down the pathways into martin scorsese films and other things like that but it was a really good entry point for me to say oh people can do some pretty amazing things with the movies maybe i should pay attention (laughs) um should we talk a little bit about high and ed Yes. Do you have a favorite yes. of these two? No, because I don't see them as two. Okay, go on. I'm I'm listening. I like this. So this is a this is a concept I teach a lot in uh, my college classes, um, uh, and I think there's an essay lurking around in me somewhere about this, about a kind of a, a narrative structure of doubling and inversion, and we see this a lot in all kinds of stories you know star wars etc right there are two skywalkers one of them is anakin one of them is luke right Mm -hmm. um and a father and a son so they're doubled and then they're inverted and then again we see oh there's a doubling and again of the leia and luke and so the doubling structure is if you want to attract people's attention and show them that there's a pattern you double something and then to make people realize that you're doing something with it you invert it so high and edwina they're doubled right i mean we're supposed to be thinking about this for a really really important reason um they're kind of the same they have these initials that they use high and ed um and then they're inverted right mm-hmm. she's a cop and he's a crook yep and so what she i makes I, him what go I guess straight by, and he makes her go criminal <laughs> Right. I don't see them as separate because I see them as kind of like a yin and yang whole Mm -hmm. where they're representing this opposite. So, of course, they should come together. And, of course, this kind of thing should happen because they're two halves of the same same coin. But this is reflected elsewhere through all these other characters um, 
in the film, right? The Lone Biker of the Apocalypse and uh, High have these matching woodpecker tattoos. Yeah, and it's Woody Woodpecker. It's not like a random bird. <laughs> Why do they right, have tattoos yeah. of the Saturday and morning cartoon? Some of the, you can go down internet rabbit holes on this. Some people go, it's not Woody Woodpecker. It's an auto parts thing or whatever. It's super obscure. But the, but the point would be, um, so here's these things that are doubled up and inverted. And so HI is doubled and inverted by the um, the pair of jailbirds. Mm-hmm. And um, so you see it all over the structure of this, that there are pairs that represent their kind of polar opposites. Of course, the Arizona family having too many babies and the um, McDonough family not having enough babies is, again, a doubling and an inversion. Oh, and then so also uh, bigger... Glenn and uh, his wife with their, yeah. their right. horde of ill-behaved yeah. children. And they're monsters. And so so we see this over and over again, I think, through this film. And Raising Arizona was one of the films that sort of taught me to start looking for this pattern. And once I got primed for it, I started seeing it all the time. And now I shout out doubling and inversion <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. Like when we were watching WandaVision, I go, look, doubling and inversion. And they're like, oh, dad, come on, man. Just let us watch it. <laughs> but at least what those things is, it, it doesn't contain a lot of meaning for me. It seems to be one of the things that, allows me to realize if there's a pattern at work here, I should start paying attention to everything because it's, it shows that there's an intentionality at play. So anyways, that's, that's my answer. Why I don't believe that um, these two characters are separate. I believe that they are a, a character unit that moves through uh, the film. I would be have uh, it would be a great debate if p- other people think something else. I I just I I love what you've said and I'm going to agree with it, but I do just want to say that Holly Hunter's performance of crying I just love him so much is maybe the high point of the film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so much. <laughs> um but this is one thing that maybe uh I would want to mention there was a certain thing that happens to people of a certain age, like quoting movies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there, you know, there's certain kinds of movies that, that feel like they have quotability for me. Raising Arizona has entered into my language. So I will say like, if something bad happens around the house, I will say, I venture no return of the salad days. <laughs> and, and so pe- my, my children my friends, my wife know when I'm lapsing, um, into stuff i'll i'll leave the room and i'll say i'll be back directly um which is what hi says when he's gonna go rob a store <laughs> yes. um and so this is again i think one of the powerful things in the writing like like it's quotable but in a different way and as i've done some research on this this is really the film where they start to develop this high hick that you see in raising arizona but you also see it in uh, oh brother where art thou you see it in true grit mm-hmm. Um, this really strangely elevated language that seems out of place, but it's absolutely in place. Right. It's absolutely it's got the, right. Uh, I, I once heard Stephen Tobolowski describe the dialogue that he had to deliver in the HBO Cowboy series Deadwood. That's that's the right yes. way. He, he described it as backward Shakespeare. And <laughs> and what you're trying to get at with the, the Coen brothers, I think it it is kind of a backward Shakespeare. And I think that that's, that's right. Mm-hmm. Although there is some Shakespeare that where he uses low language, oh, yeah, d- right? Definitely, like, yeah. like in his in his fools and drunks, mm-hmm. the the drunkard and Macbeth. We were talking about that. I didn't even think about it. Oh my gosh, Joel Cohen is going to do the the 
the gatekeeper scene from Macbeth, and it's going to be amazing. But yeah, but, I, I I think because there's a uh, like in that monologue that Nicolas Cage gives both at the beginning and the and the end, where he's talking directly to the audience. Um, there's definitely a lyricism to it that doesn't make you think backcountry hick, but there's also addiction to it that makes you think <laughs> um, backcountry right. hick at the same time. So that night I had a dream. I dreamt I was as light as the ether, a floating spirit visiting things to come. Right. That's that elevated thing. Um, But then again, there's also all the other like crazy stuff that gets said. Mm-hmm. Um, But again, it's absolutely stylized and I absolutely love it. I just, I mean, there, <laughs> I've just folded my arms and set my chin. <laughs> I, love I love it. it. That's it. Folded arms. Statement That's all you need to know. Has been made. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it is one of the things that definitely stands out on this fi- uh, about this film. And Holly Hunter and Nicolas Cage and John Goodman, I think all are able to wrangle this strange dialogue that, that has been written by the Coens. And you just know this is one of those times where if they get a word wrong, they're going to be told, actually, I need you to say it this way. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, Nicolas Cage tried to talk to the Coens, like give them some suggestions, and they were like, no. Yeah, I I need it delivered this way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, well, right. I'm sorry, Nick, but... And it's an interesting thing to go back and revisit Raising Arizona from 1987, because at what point in Nicolas Cage's career, like it wasn't internet meme Nicolas Cage yet. Right. It, was he had, right. Had, when was Moonstruck? Because he won an, or was nominated for Moonstruck, right? I can't remember. He was nominated, I think. And uh, and it certainly was before serious actor Nick Cage stage with Leaving Las Vegas, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's just had such an odd career. So now, like, you go back and there's this different cultural baggage around a Nicolas Cage performance where you're expecting, like, the, uh, the wacky looseness of everything. And that doesn't feel out of place for Cone film, but I don't think that's what we're getting in this. He's actually pretty he, high is fairly buttoned up and reserved. Uh, like he is not the wackiness of raising Arizona. A lot of that's happening around oh, yeah. him. He is, he's actually uh, like his facial reactions are often just more like resignation <laughs> than, than anything else. Uh, he doesn't get nearly as much of the scream time as John Goodman, which now if you, you know, if you cast Nicholas stage, you're expecting some, some wacky screaming, uh, you know, to, to come from him. Uh, so it's interesting to, to think about how like our relationship with this text has changed as all these actors have gone on and done other stuff. And the Coen brothers have gone on and done other stuff. And like what it means to be a Coen brothers film has changed for us. And what it means to be a Nicholas cage film has changed for us. And I think, it's so interesting in this film, the, the H.I. Edwina complex, industrial complex, is to be the abbot to everybody else's Costello. Mm-hmm. And they're both playing that role. Even though they're the protagonists, right? The name of the, this podcast, right? They're the ones that drive the action forward. This is pretty common in Coen Brothers movies as well. They put so much... Um, flavor into secondary almost in any other film would be throwaway characters but each one is sort of fully realized and unique and individual and absolutely just kind of amazing 
when you really think about the film as a whole, these are the some of the plainest characters. Like I love that weird braces kid with <laughs> like the reading the porno magazines and the, uh, the convenience store, store that pulls out a gun and is so happy to be shooting at high. Yeah, I mean, he just is like burned into my memory. And so is the woman that just hands out the paychecks. Government sure takes a bite, don't she? She's literally got like seven seconds of screen time. One line, but, like but yeah, I, as soon as you start saying it, I knew what it was, her. yeah. Um, and uh, I, I talked to people a lot about this. Son, you got a panty on your head. That's remembered. <laughs> well, if round is funny, you know, like the guy uh, later in a convenience store that's that's yeah. <laughs> one uh, of several the, convenience stores that gets robbed. Yeah, the, the 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 crooks have the baby and they're like, well, we need some diapers and we need whatever. You meet this old man um, who also appears. I, I feel like he's an extension of the guy who appears um, in No Country for Old Men. When Sugar flips the coin for him and lets him live like like they're almost like these manifestations of character energy or idea. Mm -hmm. But again, they're so fully realized in their environments that it's part of what makes the movie amazing. And these people just move through this world from amazing character to amazing character. And like every, the, the, everything we've described about high and Ed is strange and out there. And their performance is they're not playing like straight, normal people at all. <laughs> right. They're, they're, they're oh, no. playing, odd quirky characters but there's a res something very reserved in it they are not as boisterous and as out there as all these side characters that you're listing here that are memorable for seven seconds of screen time and all these other things uh and, and so it feels very strange to say that nicholas cage and holly hunter are the reserved center of raising arizona but i think they are <laughs> yeah they're they're the part they ground it mm -hmm. and uh it's just I, I wish I knew if they knew what they were doing or did they just go for it? The Coen brothers just go for it and then look back and say, check out that thing we did. <laughs> like it would be so interesting to know, but they're such tricksters. Like you, I try to read interviews with them and I'm like, you guys are just messing around with us, man. We, we can't find anything that's true. They, they, they've, their their whole career just fascinates me when I like look through the list of the 20 almost 20 films they've made so far uh, and just like how was that the next choice that you wanted to do and I think often it's because well it's because we hadn't done anything like that before <laughs> it seems to be a lot of the motivating factor of, and it's of it's so amazing the system that the system will allow it now yes Coen Brothers what movie are you going to make okay sounds good to me like I don't know what kind of restrictions and I've read through, there's lots of articles that talk about all the films that they didn't make. Um, and one of them is this James Dickey World War II pilot novel that just has like one guy in it moving across the frozen Japanese landscape. They wanted to make this movie, they've said, and they just feel like they can't. And I'm like, but they did The Revenant, so you guys should get your chance now. <laughs> people people can do this. Um so I'm sure that they've got all these other kinds of projects, these things that they want to do, and they're just sort of waiting to sequence it out, find the funding for it, you know, but it, but I, I hope that it just would be like, if the Coen brothers show up, you just say yes. I mean, I'm looking through, they've had one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, that's a repeat. Let's see. Seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. They've had, I think 12 different distributors for their 19 films. So 
I, I, I don't I don't think that at all that's a sign that they're hard to work with. I think it's a sign that sometimes studios are saying no to them and they just keep going around until they find a studio that says yes <laughs> for right, like, for the strange picture that they want to make now. And it was so interesting. Did you see the the ballad the ballad of uh, Buster Scruggs? I haven't. I know it's on Netflix and I've been meaning to go and watch it, but I just haven't it gotten around to it. Such it is such an interesting concept, and I would love to see the Coen brothers kind of be allowed to play in spaces like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like as if they just got like a Coen Brothers Western anthology show, um, but it's meant to be kind of viewed in a single sitting, like a five chapter um, thing. But that, it would be really great to see them stretch out. I, I think that the Fargo television series is fascinating. Now, how involved with that series are they? I've, I haven't looked into it to see. Well, I don't I don't know. I mean, I know that they initially part partnered with Noah Hawley. Um but Noah Hawley seems to be kind of creating all of these offshoots of Fargo, but also kind of adapting Coen Brothers-ness into each scene. Like, there's just all these things that just echo and resonate back into the Coen Brothers world. But I think it might not work if the Coen Brothers are doing it themselves. It's it's interesting that Hawley's doing it. I mean, he's he's adept. Uh, storyteller and filmmaker in his own right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that one of the things that can be tapped is here's the the Coen Brothers have a, a a style that's their own thing. It's as much as Wes Anderson has a style, or Fellini, or, or Scorsese, uh, Tim Burton, where you just kind of when you're seeing it, you know it's their work. Yeah, you just like I I know what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it comes from their editing, their pacing, their writing, their choices, their casting. But there's this quality of their work now. And I think that seems to me to be like the high aspiration of any storyteller. It's just we can tell that this is your stuff, even when it's so different. Yeah, when this one's a Western and that one's a romantic comedy. I mean, it's certainly not homogenous. You know, oh, I'm going to get like all kinds of hate on this. Like like Zack Snyder like does a thing. And that's his thing. Yeah. But part of the Coen Brothers style is how heterogeneous it is even while it's still distinctly coen brothers yeah like how do you do that i don't know how do you be so different <laughs> and so alike that is my aspiration dude to, to quote another coen brothers movie <laughs> uh or, or reference it that is my aspiration dude all right well i think we're gonna have to be wrapping this up do you have any final thoughts about uh raising arizona high and ed coen brothers that you want to make sure we cover Everybody just go watch it. Just go rewatch it. Have it on. Hear the language. Oh, my gosh. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. This usually comes up that people people are either in or out with Raising Arizona. But if you're in, it's just such a delightful thing. It's so great, too, because even though it is kind of criminal, I, I it's still a PG rated movie. And so you can, it's a chance to show. Well, it's got to be PG-13. There's one F-bomb at the beginning. Oh, there, yeah, there it's is. It's got to be at least PG-13. So, but but it's, it's relatively safe place to start your kids. Like that in the Hudsucker Proxy, I think are the only entry points for children into the world of the cones. Yeah, I was about to say, oh, brother, but that was just a little too out there. <laughs> it's a little yeah, too esoteric. Yeah, oh, <laughs> Yeah, I think that those three movies are the Coen Brothers movies that my kids have seen. Uh, I've got an 18-year-old daughter now, so we 
Uh, and she's like, Dad, what is this Fargo thing that Sky Updating is talking about? And I'm like, oh, what kind of parent am I? <laughs> um, but yeah. I, Wait, that, I think I'm looking through and, their award history. Do you know what film they had the most nominations for? Oh, my gosh. Most oh, Academy brother? Award nominations. Uh, no, they only had two nominations for a brother. Then I'm going to say it was... No Country for Old Men. That is the second. That one they had eight. They had ten nominations for True Grit. What? Whoa. It is a very good movie. Yes. I just would not have picked that one as the most nominated Academy Award wise. Now, No Country Old for, for Old Men won the most. That one won four, uh, which is uh, the Fargo won two. No Country for Old Men won four. And they won one for, uh, for uh, let's see, it says, well, this maybe for, what were they involved with with Bridge of Spies? Were they writers on that then? Yeah. Writers. Writers. Yeah. And so the screenplay, they, I think they got the original screenplay nomination for that. Did mm-hmm. they win? Yeah, that, that must be the win that they're listed for on that one. I would be interested to see what their writing efforts are. If they've got a backlog of scripts and they're like, we can't direct all of them. And to see if they're going to like um, send them out into the world. I can like Moses in the bull rushes or something. I mean, uh, Bridge of Spies, Steven Spielberg's picking it up. It's like, OK, well, of course you you may <laughs> try that. Right. You, you may adapt our work. <laughs> Hey, Spielberg wants to make this. What do we tell him? <laughs> but I can also see them saying to like some some directors like mm, not not the best match. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a delightful film. I do think that as crazy and as dark as it gets, it is hopeful. And I think that that's a good thing for these times mm-hmm. to have something where there's redemption and it's not corny and stupid. Yeah, I agree with that. And I do. Uh, we didn't spend a whole lot of time, but Holly Hunter's performance, I think, is pretty special in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, what she's able, the way that she's able to say some of these lines, I like as a human being trying to say some of these lines, it is impressive what she's able to get out and be giving the performance that the Coen brothers are asking for. Because I think I'd be dying laughing trying to say some of the words that she says. I haven't verified this deeply, but apparently they wrote the role for her. I did see that. And when I was looking at trivia, that she was in yeah. mind uh, the whole time they were writing that character. And that there was an interview with, uh, with the Coen brothers and Charlie Rose where they said that they started getting to that point where where they started writing for individual actors. And so they tailor it. Um, uh, and so they've done this through much of their career. But this may have been one of the first ones where they're like, we're going to do this specifically for you. And I, th- I think there's something in Ed that is beautifully tragic and also, as we're saying with the whole film, also really lovingly hopeful at the end <laughs> like it's just I, it's just yeah. a fascinating character to me uh and high i think dominates the film because he gets the monologues at the beginning and end and this is a very male-centric film uh like outside of ed there's not much <laughs> in terms of but uh, but the two the two major female characters ed and um glenn's wife who's played by francis mcdormand mm-hmm. Um, her character is amazing yeah it's only like uh what two minutes of screen time maybe yeah, it's it's not much, but she's another one that kind of stands yeah. out, and you're like Whoa. scene stealer for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I just Holly Hunter. I feel like she should like she should be a bigger deal to everyone. <laughs> like Holly Hunter is amazing. <laughs> I just wanna... And I remember that that was kind of like there was in Raising Arizona, and then Broadcast News, and then the piano. I'm just trying to think about like that arc through the '80s and the early '90s where. Uh, she was just kind of ascendant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know she's done some some really good stuff since she's uh, but... a elastigirl right yeah <laughs> and incredibles and now she's on uh the ted dancing sitcom uh mr mayor i believe is that good? I have not. I seen saw it. so my wife but and I, I watched the Ted first Man two Man. episodes, and it was like, okay, this has promise. It, you know, it had all the hallmarks of like, there's a great cast and there's some good writing, but they're still finding the tone. You know, uh, uh, and we fully mean to go back and watch the subsequent episodes that have been released, but we have not done it yet. Uh, well, with new television, you can kind of wait mm-hmm. and then let something uh, gather itself. This is what I did with the. Um, a good place. Oh, so amazing. Yes. Which, this which is great. I don't want to, I, I, I'm not going to take this in, in bite-sized chunks. I'm going to wait and then devour it. That's one of my favorite pieces of, of work from the last decade. Uh, you know, of anything it's like, Oh, the good place. But again, it's another thing. There's goodness in it. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's some marvelous things like raising Arizona has got this thing. The good place has got this kind of thing. Uh, Ted Lasso, uh, oh, did Lasso. you finally watch it? We talked about this at the Art Thanksgiving. I, I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> but it, it's famous I'm, for that. I'm, like everyone who talks I'm about it is like, it up. oh, it's a, it's a, it's the warm hug I need right now. My Twitter feed is a buzz of people who are discovering it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, ah, I, I need undivided attention um, to do this. But I think that what there is now is there's a market maybe for goodness. And people are doing it well without it being cheesy or corny. And I'm like, yes, bring it on. Yeah. This well, is what for, I, um, I, I think for a long time, anything that had that kind of uh, optimism about it, there was always like the Gen X undercutting cynicism at the end. Like like you wouldn't land on the optimistic moment. You'd undercut it with with the, the last joke. Like community would do this all the time, which does have a lot of heart within it. But also it really struggles to land at the heart, it always wants to do the last joke that kind of pulls you back into the world of community. Yeah, right. It's like, oh, don't catch me being like real honk honk. Ignore what I just said. Mm-hmm. But there's, I think that people are finding some real strength in it. I think Parks and Rec did it. Um, but again, I would think that maybe Raising Arizona is one of the things that kind of started this. Um, at least in its most current iteration, screwball comedies, I think have always been really pretty good at this um, as well. And this maybe is the legacy of the screwball. Well, comedy. Okay. Last, last comment. I didn't want to ask you what genre is raising Arizona in your mind. Absolutely. It's a screwball comedy. Okay. But it's, but it's a, it's, it's all jacked up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, like the, the character, the couples get together and you know, the, the first 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And the, and couples are supposed to fight. It's just a different kind of fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Okay. That's, I, that's and there's one no leopard. There's, there's no leopard, but. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did do uh, an episode about bring a baby uh, a little sometime last year. Uh, we released that. It was, I remember it was right around when uh tiger King was the big Netflix phenomena. And we were releasing <laughs> oh, the episode about bringing up baby. <laughs> it's just like, if you know the classics, you've always known big cat people are a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> indeed all right well that was- but yeah i would i would put this squarely into some kind of like hacked postmodern screwball comedy yes because you're, you're blending a lot of other genres you have heists that are happening in like five minute chunks uh within yep. the film you've got uh the weird chase sequences uh yeah there's quite a bit of other stuff that's happening uh strange family drama <laughs> from a couple different families so yeah they're, they're 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 blending many different genres in that postmodern way i mean and we need a separate podcast we didn't even talk about like the the elemental lone biker of the apocalypse is he a manifestation of high 
Hai's brain or is he separated at birth or maybe his dad or whatever. But but that's another that's another aspect of this that we couldn't even possibly start to unpack. Yeah, the, the fact that it, it like begins as a dream and then we find out it's a real character. I love that. Yeah, and yeah. no explanation for it. It just is. Yeah, you accept it, just like the narrator in The Big Lebowski. You, this is this is what's happening in this movie. Deal. Yeah, you really do need to just accept that this is not our world with things like the violence that happens, like when he gets dragged uh, by the motorcycle. <laughs> it's like, right? It would look like he'd been run across a cheese grater, and he just hops up after that. <laughs> Or yeah, somebody gets blown up and the only thing that bounces down the street is a pair of baby shoes. Yes, and, and there's no repercussions for all the violence that happens <laughs> within None. this in terms of like uh, law coming after them or, or you know, physical violence or, you know, you know, the threats to their bodies, any of that, you know. And the well, it is always... Arizona. You can detonate a grenade in Arizona and nobody cares, literally. <laughs> and like the baby's always just fine falling off the car. It always lands just perfectly in the car seat. Yeah, but it's that that's the world. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. All right, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at jdorowski, and producer Andrew is at disminute, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Todd, we already plugged your book, Picnic in the Ruins, a little bit at the beginning is there anything else you would like to plug uh no just uh all the great films that are out there and all the great stories uh you guys do such a great job i think scouring uh all of the possible stories and curating them for us and it's fantastic oh well thank you if anybody wants to find me i'm most readily available out on twitter it's at todd peterson and it's sen over on the twitters Yes. Uh, well, thank you. We try and keep it eclectic, and uh, it turns out there's a lot of media. We're not running out of anything. It's <laughs> what we found doing this podcast. You would think, like, uh, you know, is there anything else to say? Oh, no, here's the next dozen things we're trying to get to that we still haven't gotten around to. Well, thank you, listeners, for downloading. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. I just lost my train of thought. Um,